You're stuck listening to my voice some more this morning, so hopefully that's all right with you. Can you hear me? We're having some technical difficulties, but that's the norm. Oh, guess you need to shave to preach these days. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for letting us to worship you, and thank you for leading us into life into hope, into joy, and into even an understanding of what it means to be a human um, that has gone well beyond what we could have ever expected before we knew you. We love you today. Would you reveal yourself to us by your spirit? Would the words of your scripture um, be like water to our thirsty souls? In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Today's text comes from uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43, so please pull out your Bibles and turn there. A quick note for those of you that don't know, a lectionary, I think we're probably all very familiar with a lectionary, uh, but if you don't know, a lectionary is a calendar of biblical readings. In the RCA, we often use what's called the Revised Common Lectionary, formed by an ecumenical council, that is, a collection of individuals from a variety of denominations of Christianity. Uh, And the Revised Common Lectionary was formed in 1985. Uh, It was tested for nine years and released to the public in 1994, which means this text that we're going to get to read together today was prepared for us 31 years ago. Wow, right? So listen carefully because God had you in mind 31 years. That's before I was born by quite a bit. So uh, praise be to God. Starting in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, that is Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was written a notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And this is the word of the Lord. How many of you are familiar with crucifixion? Yeah, a couple of us, we've heard of it before. Uh, Have you ever seen a cross before? Oh, there's one right there. Well, let's recap anyway. The cross 
became a symbol of our Christian faith. Um, But the cross is a torture device. And it's a political tool. Crucifixion, the process of killing a person on a cross, was not intended to be a symbol of faith, hope, love, joy, and salvation. In fact, its purpose was to instill exactly the opposite in everyone who witnessed. By design, crucifixion was a public and painful experience, a public and painful execution. There are many ways to kill criminals, even just in these last American elections. Uh, California voted to retain the death penalty uh, as a means of judgments on, purpose, uh, on persons. We still utilize death as a form of punishment of criminals. But we in the states, at least we ought to be and typically are, are careful to perform such a punishment in as humane a way as possible. Capital punishment in America is generally private, quiet, fast, and ideally painless. Crucifixion, on the other hand, is painful, slow, loud, public, and very intentionally so. The criminal is stripped of their clothes, and they carry the cross themselves through the streets so that people can see their path to death, the burden of death literally weighing down on their shoulders. The cross is laid on the ground, and the criminal is laid across it, and then, as you know, the metal and the nails finds its spot in their hands or their wrists, and then the sound of the hammer provides rhythm to the screams of the pain until it finds its home in the wood behind the flesh. This for each hand and then for the feet, and the feet are lifted slightly so that the knees are bent, so when the feet are pierced like the hands, uh, the person now planted up like a flag to be seen is uncomfortable, (laughs) to put it kindly, because the nails aren't intended to kill you. They might eventually... But death comes by suffocation with the knees lifted and all the hours of your body pulled this way. Your lungs collapse on themselves. And the only way to breathe is to pull yourself up, to expand your lungs. But the only support you have to pull yourself up are your bent legs with nails in them and your hands with nails on the side. So it's excruciating to lift up. But even when you choose death, your body still is going to lift in order to breathe. You die slowly and painfully and intentionally so. Plus, not only is it painful, it gives plenty of time to low, the long, slow death for people to mock you. And worse, it gives plenty of time for you, after being mocked, as we see happening to Jesus, to watch everyone else go home, abandoning you there on the cross, while you endure a cold, naked, bloody, and lonely death in which even the air that you breathe, the one thing that was always free for you to enjoy, is taken away. And this is crucifixion. The Romans used this primarily against political enemies, rebels and foreign powers who threatened uprising, um, but not for citizens. Crucifixion was a remarkably efficient tool for dissipating the courage of gathering opponents. But it was not limited to these types of criminals. It could be used for all sorts of people. We don't know exactly what the criminals crucified next to Jesus had done. Matthew and Mark, they're called violent robbers. Um, They could be murderers often. 
but we know they're criminals. But by crucifying these criminals on the cross, whatever they had done, Rome made a clear statement to the entire city of Jerusalem and to anyone else who would hear, not only that the crime would be punished, but that Rome had complete and utter victory over all its opponents. We are the victors, you are the losers. Crucifixion publicly and painfully labeled the recipient of said execution an outsider, a person of the losing class. And it said to anyone that might share anything in common with that criminal, that Rome had them under their thumb. Rome was absolute. In this world, there are only two options, Rome or death. Victory or demise? Which side will you be on? This is the game we have to play. For this reason, it would only make sense to mock the crucified. We heard that the rulers did it. We heard the soldiers did it. We even heard the criminal on the cross did it. Create as much distance between you and the crucified as possible. The powerful, comfortable, and well-regarded don't want to lose what they have. And the rest want to get what the well-regarded, the comfortable, and the powerful have. So mock the losers, lest you might be cast aside with them. The only reason not to mock the losers is if you still hold a sliver of hope that you might be able to conquer the ones who are currently victors, and in which case you just flip the scales. So let's read our text again one more time. Twice, once for as many as there are criminals hung with Jesus. And hear the voice of God and the position of power and the temptation to lust for it. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even or the chief priests of Israel, sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Again, this is the word of the Lord. And do you see how this separation happens? The political power play occurring here on the cross, even just in this short narrative about it. The game of winners and losers being acted out. You made note, I assume, of the sign put above Jesus' head, which said, The King of the Jews. Why would this be put above his head? We know it now, as believers in Christ, to be a true statement that Jesus was the King of Jews, and Jesus truly is the King of Jews, and not only of the Jews, but of all the heavens and the earth. But... What was it intended to mean, and how did the people receive it then? Well, it was mockery, sure, but it was also a threat. And as a threat, it was an opportunity, and as an opportunity, it was a trap. For all the Jews living in Jerusalem, it was a demand to self-identify. Crucified right outside the gates of Jerusalem on a hill called the Skull, the sign above Jesus' head asked each passerby, Is this your king? So how would you answer? 
Well, the rulers of the Jews, Herod and the chief priests, had long ago answered this question. They were happy to submit to Rome. For them, that meant wealth and power and status. All they had to do was compromise everything true and betray their own people. And the passage tells us as much. The people stood watching, and the rulers even, who are again the chief priests of Israel, sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is Christ of God, the chosen one. And in doing so, they mock both Jesus and all those whom he saved. They say loudly to ensure it's not mistaken. This one is not our king, and we will make sure you know so that his punishment does not become ours. We are on the side of the victors. John's gospel makes it even more clear. In chapter 19 of John, feel free to turn there if you'd like, the same chief priests say plainly to Pontius Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And later in chapter 20, they try to convince Pilate not to write on the sign the king of the Jews, but instead to write that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Jesus and the criminals with him are the losers to the victorious Rome. And Herod and even the rulers of the Jews want nothing to do with losing. They want everything to do with victory with Rome. Pandering to the Roman authorities, submission to them is the option chosen by the chief priests and many others who hurled insults at Jesus. But it is not the only option. Again, resistance remains an option. But herein lies the trap and the power of crucifixion because Rome is confident in their power. They have the theatrics to back it up. Crucifixion is the theater of victory over resistance. When you see it, you know with certainty this is what happens to those who oppose Rome. Whether I submit willingly or I am overtaken forcefully, I will be subject to the mighty thumb of Caesar. There are only two outcomes in the cosmic game, and both options belong to Rome. Rome or death by their hand. Haves and have not. The not criminals, the criminals, the winners and the losers. And this is the game we all play, even today. So where are we going? Why does this matter to us? This is the same world we live in. A world of winners and losers. It's not Rome anymore, but it's all sorts of things. Life is a game in which some are on top and others are on the bottom. And the goal is always to get to the top. If we work together and we work hard enough, maybe lots of us can be near the top. But even then, the goal is the same, that we would be near the top. Be like Rome or be with Rome, at least. Otherwise, you're dead. And to die is to lose the game. But here is the message from God for us today. The message from God for us is not to win the game. It's not how to win the game. The message from God isn't even to hate Rome or whoever else Rome represents that's currently winning the game. It's not to flip the players of the game upside down so that the ones who are on the top are now at the bottom, the ones on the bottom are now at the top, as good as that may be at times. This is the message from God for us today, I believe. Stop playing the game. Stop playing the game at all. And let's look at the two criminals, because I think they lead us there. In our story, there are two, and the two criminals represent every person that ever lived, including you and me. 
And in the two criminals, we are exposed to the actual options and the actual outcomes. I've been saying all along, Rome or death. These are not the actual outcomes. Our world is not split between winners and losers, righteous and unrighteous, successful and unsuccessful, Rome and the ones Rome crucifies. Our world is separated by those who are still stuck in the game, stuck in the ebb and flow, the ladder, the competition, those stuck in the world, and the other side, those who have been found, who have found a way out. In our story, an astonishing thing happens. One of the criminals crucified with Jesus, a man undergoing all the same pain that Jesus is going on the cross, begins also to mock him. What does he gain by this? What gain do you get? He's already being crucified. It's too late to win back Rome's favor. What good does it do for him to mock? It does him no good except for his pride, and it does us good by revealing the state of his mind. He in mocking Jesus, proves to us that he's still playing this game. And that's what counts. We can assume that he hates Rome because they're the ones who are crucifying him. They are the ones who have punished him. They're the ones who he acted criminally against in the first place. But by mocking Jesus, he becomes exactly like them. What did the Romans do? Their soldiers, they mocked Jesus. What did the Jewish leaders do who were submissive to Rome do? They mocked Jesus. What did this one do who claimed to be antagonistic To Rome, do? He mocked Jesus as well. They're all playing the same game. They all have the same goals in mind. It does him no good except for his pride. Admitting defeat by means of death, at least he can gain a few more points by becoming a little like them. But you point out to me, sure, he's mocking them, mocking him, Jesus, but he also asks Jesus to save him, right? Can't you save yourself and us? Isn't that at least a sign of a sliver of faith of something different in him? And I say no. The first thing the mocking does is reveal a continued sense of self-righteousness, or at least his need to feel like he has some self-righteousness. You only put others down to make yourself feel more grand. We've all experienced this in grade school. I'm not so bad compared to this guy as he's being crucified And second, the faith found in that request, aren't you the Christ, save yourself in us, is not true faith. In fact, the statement does nothing but expose his continued blindness. He does not see Christ for who Christ really is. He may believe Jesus has the power to get him off the cross in this moment, but his request is this and only this, get me down so I can get back into the game. Get me off the cross so I can live my life just a little bit longer. Get me off the cross because I want to go prove to my enemies how strong I can really be, that I can beat them. Get me off the cross because I'm here unjustly. It's not fair. You should be helping me. It's everyone else's fault. Get me off the cross because I deserve to be at the top, not here at the bottom. Get me off the cross because there's more I need to do in this life. Get me off the cross because I'm afraid I haven't done enough. Get me off the cross because if I stay here any longer, I'm a loser and that's the worst thing in the world to me. Can you relate to his plea? Have you felt the same fear that he has approaching death, scrambling to salvage whatever he can in the world? Maybe not approaching death, but maybe just approaching conviction. You know you've done something wrong, and you try with everything in you to get away from it, to prove that you still have something of your own strength left. Have you resorted in those times of weakness to mockery? Have you resorted to pleading? Have you hidden your fears in that mockery and that cruelty, and in doing so, bolstered 
a perceived self-righteousness that you thought was worth something, but that the cross of Jesus Christ proves to us counts for nothing. We've all played this game and we've all lost this game. The first criminal, the one who mocks, representative of Rome by his mocking and representative of all the losers against Rome in his execution, shows us the end of the game for everyone caught up in it, caught up in the world we still live in. All of our end, whether we're winners or losers by the standards of society, is death. At the end of the day, all of us turn to ash just the same, and all of our righteousness fades into nothingness and counts as rags before the riches of a righteous God. But there is a second criminal, and in him a far more astonishing thing happens. The other, the second, also enduring the same plight, rebukes the man. He says, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says only four things on his way to death. His first words are to a woman mourning in the section just previous to ours from today. To her, Jesus says, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and your children, because he knows all those still caught in the bottom rungs of this game of the world, the poor and the oppressed, there will continue to be pain, and this is worth mourning for. The second words that we have are, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And this we read together today. Jesus knows that for those at the top of the game, the rich and the powerful and the violent, they will need a great deal of forgiveness, for they don't know the death that they bring upon themselves. But his third words, his words in response to the second criminal, are very different. They are spoken neither to the lowly or to the high, but to the one who now has overcome altogether. Throughout the whole of Jesus' ministry, Jesus preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And here at the cross, possibly for the first time in fullness, at the very last opportunity, this lowly criminal, who is a true criminal, not a guy who is mistaken for a criminal, a real criminal, ashamed and dying, says just what Jesus has been waiting to hear from all those to whom he has preached. He says, I repent, for I see that the kingdom of heaven is here. He confesses his sins, accepting wholly the death that he has been given. He knows he's a true criminal. He does not presume to have been framed. He doesn't think that he's good enough to have escaped this. He admits his unrighteousness. He gives himself over to death. He confesses and he abandons all hope in his ability to find righteousness or victory, or success in this world of his own doing. He says to the other criminal who's mocking Jesus, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And he sees Jesus, this man crucified on the cross next to him, who he knows is free from all guilt, yet still is crucified. And despite the fact that Jesus is in this moment dying, 
in this very moment Jesus is dying, despite that, this criminal believes in his kingdom. He believes yet that this dying man is the king and that of all eternity. But this man has done nothing wrong. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And how astonishing is this? That in the Jesus who is being crucified, this criminal sees the king who can deliver him from the world and all its vices, the one who will reign forever. Jesus, paradoxically, and now revealed to this man who has confessed his sins wholly, takes crucifixion, the cross, the ultimate symbol of losing the game, of losing in the world, of losing in politics, of losing in war, of losing in status. Jesus takes that symbol and this criminal sees and turns it into the ultimate symbol of faith, hope, love, joy, and salvation. And by it sets free all who believe and take up their cross with him. I don't think it's a coincidence that the first one to see this happening, the first one to say to Jesus, I do repent that your kingdom is at hand, happens to be able, or happens to be on the cross when he does so. There were two criminals, and they represent all of us. We think the world, and the world will tell us that the world is split between winners and losers, those who keep on living and those who die, those who are rich, those who are poor, those who are successful and influential, and those who are not. But this is not the case. Everyone will die. Everyone in the game of the world is a loser. Instead, the world is split between those who remain in and of the world and those who, uh, uh, sorry, those who remain in and of the world refusing to let go of their pride and their ambitions, who go to the grave mocking and grasping for more, and on the other side, those who confess their sins like this sinner, who admit their need for the Lord, who let go of their pride and their self-perceived righteousness, and who fear God, who put their trust in Jesus Christ through all things, even death, and who in doing so overcome the world being moved out of the game, caring nothing for what the world has to give to them. So if these two criminals represent in one way or another each of us, even today, the question comes to us, which criminal are you? Which one are you going to be? How are you going to see Jesus when you eventually come to death? How are you going to see Jesus now when we're called by that same Jesus to carry our cross even in present days? Will you be one set free from the game? Or will you instead rest freely in the faithfulness of God? Because it's an insidious game. And we know it's traps. It lures us back into its schemes. Simple things, right? Do you find yourself equating a life of comfort with righteousness? Oh, yeah, I'm comfortable now. I've got the house that I've always wanted. I've made it. Therefore, I'm righteous. That's playing the game. Do you think you're doing pretty good and that's enough? I care for people here and there and thusly, because I've done okay, better than other folks. Do you covet what others have? Do you make a mockery of those who have less than you or who are different than you? And do you demand of them things you don't even demand of yourself and expect to reap the benefit of their labor? This is what the man asked of Jesus. Do you play the game? We all play the game. Let us stop playing the game. Are you going to keep trying and trying to get down from the cross that Jesus calls us to, from the cross that is the 
gateway to eternal life, paradoxically as it is? Or will you be set free entirely from the world through the power of that cross? Will you confess your sin? Will you admit your fault? Will you cast all your trust upon Jesus Christ? Will you love your neighbor and covet nothing from him? Because you know that your life and all that you have has been crucified with Christ. And so, too, raised with Christ and hidden in Christ to such an extent that there's nothing of true value to you that you could lose. What is there to covet? Will you stop blaming other people for the problems of this world? And instead of concerning yourself with those things, concern with how you can love friend, neighbor, enemy alike. Will you fear God? Will you believe the mystery of the cross? Will you stop playing the game? And remember Christ, who remembers us, and who took our sin upon his innocent shoulders, so that we might be set free from the tyranny of the world, from shame, from sin, from death, from powers and principalities, and that we might have with him, with one another, together, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Please pray with me. Father, so easily we are captivated by sin. So easily we are entranced by power. So easily we wish to be like those we think are greater than us. Lord, would our eyes see the world the way you see it? And would our eyes see you like the criminal on the cross as true king, as true Savior? And would we no longer concern ourselves with the things of this world, but would our spirits and our minds and our bodies be wholly consumed, wholly interested, even obsessed about how we can most love you and love one another in service to you and your gospel. We pray this this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.